Art Classic Pearls, a podcast for stories. I'm your host, Classic Pearls. Welcome back to another episode of Heart Classic Pearls. Previously, we shared with you a novel by Kyung Suk Shin, translated by Chi Young Kim, which explores how family members react and respond to trauma and unreplaceable loss. In this episode, we'll be continuing this story of Chapter 1, Nobody Knows. Before we continue with this reading, I'd like to mention Korean 1, which is pretty easy to convert. Um, when I was little, my older sister taught me an easy trick to decipher the Korean one to the US dollar. This conversion is 1001, which is the Korean one for a dollar. So all I did here was pretty much take away the three zeros in 1000, and I can easily recognize that 1001 is equivalent to the dollar. Now, this conversion isn't exact, obviously, because the US dollar is of higher value than the Korean one. So when you convert your uh, US dollars to Korean one, it'll be different. Um, and I'm sure it, it's a Google search away for that exact um, conversion. In this part of the reading of chapter one, um, she buys $15 squid. And um, that's mentioned in the book as 15,001. So she didn't buy $15,000 worth of squid. She just bought $15 worth of squid. So I thought that was important to mention so that there wouldn't be any confusion about how much squid <laughs> um, she bought at the fish market. You went for a visit without announcing it beforehand and you discovered that you had become a guest. Mother was continually embarrassed about the messy yard or their dirty blankets. At one point, she grabbed a towel from the floor and hung it up, and when food dropped on the table, she picked it up quickly. She took a look at what she had in the fridge, and even though you tried to stop her, she went to the market. If you are with family, you needn't feel embarrassed about leaving the table uncleared after a meal and going to do something else. You realized you had become a stranger as you watched Mother try to conceal her messy everyday life. Maybe you'd become a guest before then. When you moved to the city, after you left home, your mother never scolded you. Before, Mother would reprimand you harshly if you did something even remotely wrong. From when you were young, Mother always addressed you as you girl. Usually, she said that to you and your sister when she wanted to differentiate between her daughters and sons. But your mother also called you, you girl, when she demanded that you correct your habits, disapproving of the way you went for a visit without announcing it beforehand, and you discovered that you had become a guest. Mother was continually embarrassed about the messy yard or the dirty blankets. At one point, she grabbed a towel from the floor and hung it up. And when food dropped on the table, she picked it up quickly. She took a look at what she had in the fridge, and even though you tried to stop her, she went to the market. If you're with family, you needn't feel embarrassed about leaving the table uncleared after a meal and going to do something else. You realized you'd become a stranger as you watched Mother try to conceal her messy everyday life. Maybe you'd become a guest even before then when you moved to the city. After you left home, your mother never scolded you. Before, 
Mother would reprimand you harshly if you did something even remotely wrong. For when you were young, Mother always addressed you as you girl. Usually, she said that to you and your sister when she wanted to differentiate between her daughters and sons. But your mother also called you you girl when she demanded that you correct your habits, disapproving of your way of eating fruit, your walk, your clothes, and your style of speech. But sometimes she would become worried and look closely into your face. She studied you with a concerned expression when she needed your help to pull flat the corners of starched blanket covers, or when she had you put kindling in the old-fashioned kitchen furnace to cook rice. One cold winter day, you and your mother were at the well, cleaning the skate that would be used for the ancestral rites at New Year's, when she said, You have to work hard in school so that you can move into a better world. Did you understand her words then? When mother scolded you freely, you more frequently called her mother. The word mother is familiar and it hides a plea. Please look after me. Please stop yelling at me and stroke my head. Please be on my side whether I'm right or wrong. You never stopped calling her mother, even now when mother's missing. When you call out mother, you want to believe that she's healthy, that mother is strong, that mother isn't phased by anything. The mother is the person you want to call whenever you despair about something in the city. Last autumn, you didn't tell her that you were coming down, but it wasn't to free your mother from preparing for your arrival. You were in Pohang at the time. Your parents' house was far from Pohang. So when you arrived on an early morning flight, even when you got up at dawn and washed your hair and left for the airport, you didn't know that you were going to see mother in Chongup. It was farther and more difficult to go to Chongop from Pohang than from Seoul. It wasn't something you'd expected to do. When you got to your parents' house, the gate was open. The front door was open, too. You had a lunch date with Yubin back in the city the next day, so you were going to return home on the next night train. Even though you were born there, the village had become an unfamiliar place. The only things left from your childhood were the three little nettle trees. How mature, near the stream, when you went to your parents' house, you took the small path towards the nettle-lined stream instead of the big road. If you kept going that way, it would lead you straight to the back gate of your childhood home. A long time ago, there was a communal well right, right outside the back gate. The well was filled in when modern plumbing was installed in every house, but you stood on that spot before entering the house. You tapped the sturdy cement with your foot precisely where the abundant well used to be. You were overwhelmed with nostalgia. What would the well be doing in the darkness under the street? The well that had supplied water to all the people in the alley and still sloshed about. You weren't there when the well was filled in. One day you went back for a visit and the well was gone, just the cement road where it had been. Probably because you didn't see the well being filled with your own eyes, you couldn't stop imagining that the well was still there, brimming with water under the cement. You stood above the well for a while, then went through the gate, calling, Mother, but she didn't answer. The setting autumn sunlights filled the yard of the house, which faced west. You went into the house to look for her, but she wasn't in the living room or the bedroom. The house was a mess. 
A water bottle stood open on the table, and a cup was perched on the edge of the sink. A basket of rags was overturned on the floor mat in the living room, and on the sofa was a dirty shirt with its sleeves flung apart, as if father had just taken it off. The late afternoon sun was illuminating the empty space. Mother, even though you knew nobody was there, you called one more time. Mother, you walked out the front door and in the side yard discovered mother lying on the wooden platform in the doorless shed. Mother, you called, but there was no reply. You put on your shoes and walked towards the shed. From there, you could look over the yard. A long time ago, mother had brewed malt in the shed. It was a useful space especially after it was expanded into the adjacent pigsty. She piled old, unused kitchen supplies on the shelves she had mounted on the wall, and underneath there were glass jars of things she had pickled and preserved. It was Mother who had moved the wooden platform into the shed. After the old house was torn down and a western-style house was built, she would sit on the platform to do kitchen work that she couldn't easily do in the modern kitchen inside. She would grind red peppers in the mortar to make it kimchi, sift through bean stalks to find beans and shuck them, make red pepper paste, salt cabbage for winter kimchi, or dry fermented soybean cakes. The kennel next to the shed was vacant, the dog chain lying on the ground. You realized that you hadn't heard the dog that when you walked into the house. Looking around for him, you approached mother, but she didn't move. She must have been cutting courgettes to dry in the sun. A chopping board, a knife, and courgettes were pushed to the side, and small slices of courgettes were cradled in a worn bamboo basket. At first you wondered, was mother sleeping? Recalling that she wasn't one to take naps, you peered into her face. Mother had a hand clutching her head, and she was struggling with all her might. Her lips were parted, and she was frowning so intently that her face was gnarled with deep wrinkles. Mother! She didn't open her eyes. Mother! Mother! You knelt in front of mother and shook her hard, and her eyes opened slightly. They were bloodshot, and beads of sweat dotted her forehead. Your mother didn't seem to recognize you. Weighted with pain, her face was a miserable knot. Only some invisible malevolence could cause an expression like that. She closed her eyes again. Mother, you scrambled onto the platform and cradled your mother's tortured face on your lap. You hooked your arm under her armpit so that her head wouldn't slide off your knees. How could she be left alone in this state? Outrage flashed through your conscience, as if someone had thrown her in the shed like that. But you were the one who had moved away and left your mother's side. If one is deeply shocked, one cannot figure out what to do. Should I call an ambulance? Should I move her into the house? Where's father? These thoughts raced through your head, but you ended up gazing down at mother, lying across your lap. You had never seen her face contorted like that, so miserable in such pain. Her hand, which was pressing down on her forehead, fell listlessly to the platform. Mother breathed laboriously, exhausted. Her limbs drooped, as if she could no longer exert the effort to try to avoid the pain. Mother, your heart pounded. It occurred to you that she might be dying, just like this. But then Mother's eyes opened calmly and trained themselves on you. It should have surprised her to see you, but there was nothing in her eyes. She appeared to be too weak to react. A while later, she called your name, her face dull, and she mumbled something faintly. You leaned in. 
When my sister died, I couldn't even cry. Mother's pale face was so hollow that you couldn't say a thing. Your aunt's funeral was in the spring. You didn't go. You hadn't even visited her, although she had been ill for almost a year. And what were you doing instead? When you were young, your aunt was your second mother. During summer holidays, you went to live with her in her house just on the other side of the mountain. Your aunt had the closest relationship with you among all your siblings. It was probably because you looked like mother. Your aunt always said, You and your mother are cast from the same mold. As if she were recreating her childhood with her sister, your aunt fed rabbits with you and braided your hair. She cooked a pot of barley with a scoop of rice on top and saved the rice for you. At night, you lay across her, your, her lap and listened to the stories she told you. You remembered how your aunt used to slide an arm under your neck at night to fashion a pillow for you. Even though she had left this world, you still remembered your aunt's scent from those childhood visits. She spent her old age looking after her grandchildren while their parents ran a bakery. Your aunt fell down the stairs as she was carrying a child on her back and was rushed to the hospital where she found out that cancer had spread through her body to such an extent that it was too late to do anything. Your mother told you the news. My poor older sister. Why didn't they catch it until now? She'd never even gone in for a checkup. Your mother visited her sister with porridge and spooned some into her mouth. You listened quietly when your mother called to say, Yesterday, I went to see your aunt. I made sesame porridge and she had a good appetite. You were the first one mother called when she found out that your aunt had died. My sister died. You didn't say anything. You don't need to come since you're busy. Even if mother hadn't said that, you wouldn't have been able to go to your aunt's funeral because you had a deadline coming up. Hongchar, who went to the funeral, told you that he had been worried that mother would be devastated, but she didn't cry and she told him that she didn't want to go to the burial grounds. Really? you'd asked. Yongcher said he thought it was strange too, but he honored her wishes. In the shed that day, mother whose face was marred with pain told you she couldn't even cry when her sister died. Why not? You should have cried if you wanted to, you said, feeling a little relieved that she was returning to the mother you knew, even though she spoke without revealing any emotion. Your mother blinked placidly. I can't cry anymore. You didn't say anything. Because then my head hurts so much it feels like it's going to explode. With the setting sun warming your back, you gazed down at mother's face, cradled on your lap as if it were the first time you were seeing it. Mother got headaches? So severe that she couldn't even cry? Her dark eyes, which used to be as brilliant and round as the eyes of a cow that is about to give birth, were hidden under wrinkles. Her pale, fat lips were dry and cracked. You picked up her arm, which she'd flung on the platform, and placed it on her stomach. You stared at the dark sunspots on the back of her hand, saturated with a lifetime of labor. You could no longer say you knew mother. When your uncle was alive, he would come to see mother every Wednesday. He had just returned to Chongop after a nomadic life of roaming the country. There was no specific reason for the visit. He just rode on, on his bike and saw mother and left. Sometimes, instead of coming into the house, he called from the gate, Sister, doing well? Then 
Before your mother could get out to the yard, he called, I'm going now, and turned his bike around and left. As far as you knew, mother and her brother were not close. At some point, before you were even born, your uncle had borrowed a, quite a lot of money from father, but he never paid it back. Your mother sometimes brought that up, bitterly. She said, because of your uncle, she always felt indebted to your father and father's sister. Even though it was your uncle's debt, it was hard for your mother to come to terms with the knowledge that he didn't pay it back. When four or five years went by without news from your uncle, your mother often wondered out loud, what could your uncle be doing these days? You couldn't tell if mother was worrying about him or resenting him. One day, your mother heard someone push the gate open and enter, saying, sister, are you in? Mother, who was inside eating tangerines with you, threw open the door and ran out. It happened so quickly. Who was it that got her so excited? Curious, you followed her out. Mother paused on the porch, looking at the gate, shouted, Brother! to the person standing next to it, and ran to him, not caring that she was barefoot. It was your uncle. Your mother, who ran out like the wind, beat his chest with his fist and cried, Brother! Brother! You watched her from the porch. It was the first time you had heard her calling someone brother. When she referred to her brother, she had always called him your uncle. You don't understand why you were so surprised when you saw mother run to your uncle and call him brother in a delighted nasal tone, when you had known all along that you had an uncle. You realized, oh, mother has a brother, too. Sometimes you laugh to yourself when you remember that your mother was like that day. Your aging mother jumping up and down from the porch, running across the yard to your uncle, shouting, brother, as if she were a child, mother acting like a girl, even younger than you, that your mother was stuck in your head. It made you think, even mother, you don't understand why it took you so long to realize something so obvious. To you, mother was always mother. It never occurred to you that she had taken her first step or had once been three or twelve or twenty years old. Mother was mother. She was born as mother. Until you saw her running to your uncle like that, it hadn't dawned on you that she was a human being who harbored the exact same feeling you had for your brothers. And this realization led to the awareness that she too had had a childhood. From then on, you sometimes thought of mother as a child, as a girl, as a young woman, as a newlywed, as a mother who had just given birth to you. You couldn't leave mother and return to the city after seeing her like that in the shed. Father was in Sokcho with some people from the Regional Center for Korean Traditional Performing Arts. He was supposed to be home in two days. Although mother got over the severe pain, she couldn't free herself from the headache and she couldn't smile, let alone cry. She couldn't even understand your suggestion that she should go to the hospital. When you helped her into the house, she walked gingerly trying to keep her pain in check. A long time passed before she could talk. Mother said she always got headaches, but only had terrible ones once in a while, and that she could put up with it since those moments had passed. Did your siblings know about mother's headaches? Did father? You wanted to tell them and to take her to the big hospital as soon as you returned to the city, when she was able to move around by herself. Mother asked, don't you need to go back? At some point, your visits home had become shorter. You would come for only a few hours and return to the city. You thought of your date the next day, but told your mother that you were going to stay the night. 
You remember the smile that spread across her face. You left the live octopus you brought at Pohong Fish Market in the kitchen, since neither you nor your mother knew what to do with it. And you sat across from mother at the table, like old times, quietly eating a simple meal of rice and panchan, side dishes of water kimchi, braised tofu, sautéed anchovies, and toasted seaweed. When mother wrapped a piece of seaweed around some rice, as she did when you were little, and held it out, you took it and ate it. After dinner to digest the food, you and mother walked around the outside of the house. It was no longer the same house you grew up in, but the front, side, and backyards were still connected, like before. In the backyard on the ledge, there were still so many tall clay jars. When you were young, they were filled with soy sauce, red pepper paste, salt, and bean paste, but now they were empty. As the two of you walked, mother sometimes leading and sometimes falling behind, she suddenly asked you why you'd come home. I went to Pohong. Pohong is far away from here. Yes. It's farther to come here from Pohong than from Seoul. Yes, it is. What made you come here from Pohong when it seems like you don't ever have time to visit? Instead of answering, you grabbed mother's hand, desperately, as if you were grasping for a lifeline in the darkness because you didn't know how to explain your emotions. You told mother that in the early morning, you had gone to lecture at the Braille Library in Pohang. A Braille Library? Mother asked. Braille is what the blind read with their fingers. Mother nodded. As you circled the house, you told mother about your trip to Pohang. For a few years, the Braille Library had been asking you to visit. But each time you couldn't because of a previous engagement. In early spring, you'd received another call. You had just published your latest work. The librarian told you that they wanted to publish your newest book in Braille. Braille? You didn't know much about it, except that it was the language of the blind, as you told mother. You listened to the librarian impassively, as if you were hearing about a book you hadn't yet read. The librarian said they wanted your permission. If the librarian hadn't said permission, you might not have agreed to go to the Braille library. That word permission moved you. Blind people wanted to read your book. They were asking for your permission to recreate your book in a language only they could communicate through. You answered, sure, suddenly feeling powerless. A librarian said that the book would be completed by November and that Braille Day was also in November. He said they would appreciate it if you could come that day and participate in the dedication ceremony for the book. You wondered how things had got to that point, but you couldn't go back on your shore. It probably helped that it was early spring, and November seemed far away. But time passed, spring passed, summer came and went, autumn came, and soon enough it was November. And then that day had arrived. Most things in the world are not unexpected, if one thinks carefully about them. Even something one would call unusual if one thinks about it. It's really just a thing that was supposed to happen. Encountering unusual events often means you didn't think things through. Your trip to the Braille Library and the events that occurred, they were all things you could have predicted if you really thought about the Braille Library. But you were busy in the spring, summer, and autumn. Even on the day you went to the Braille Library, you weren't thinking about the people you were going to meet there. You were worried that you would be late for the 10 o'clock meeting time. You barely made it onto the 8 a.m. flight, then arrived in Pohang, 
took a cab to the Braille library, and went to the waiting room. The director sat down facing you with the help of the volunteer. He greeted you politely, thank you for coming all this way, and held his hand out. Trying to mask your nervousness, you shook it, saying brightly, hello. His hand was soft. The director talked about your book until right before the event. He smiled and nodded at this blind man who had just read your work. Even though he couldn't see you, smile or nod, that day was Braille Day, their holiday. When you entered the auditorium, 400 people awaited you, some still trickling in with the help of volunteers. There were men and women of all ages, but no children. The ceremony began and a few people came to the front, one by one, and made little speeches. Some people received certificates of appreciation. They spoke about your book, and you went to the front to receive the Braille version. Your one book became four volumes in Braille. The books given to you by the director were twice as big as yours, but they were light. You heard applause as you returned to your seat with the book in your hands. The ceremony continued. As plaques were given to congratulate readers, you opened one of your volumes. At once you felt faint. An infinite number of dots on white paper. It was as if you had fallen into a black hole, as if you were walking on stairs you knew so well that climbing them didn't even register in your mind. And while thinking about something else, you missed a step and tumbled down. Braille proliferated on the white paper, each letter a hole made by a needle, words you couldn't decipher at all. You told mother that you flipped past the first page and the second page and the third page and then closed the book. Because your mother was listening intently to your story, you continued. At the end of the ceremony, you stood in front of everyone and talked about your work. When you laid the books on the day and looked out at the audience, your back stiffened. You had no idea what to focus on, standing in front of 400 people who couldn't see. So what did you do? Your mother asked. You told her that the 50 minutes given to you seemed never-ending. You were the type of person who looked into someone's eyes when they talked. When you talked, you sometimes told the entire story, or maybe only half, depending on the feeling you got from the person's eyes. Some eyes coaxed out stories you never told anyone. You wondered, does mother know that I'm like that? In front of 400 people, you didn't know who to look at or how to start talking. Some eyes were closed, some half open, and some hidden behind dark glasses. Some eyes seemed to stare straight through you and your nervousness. Even though all eyes were aimed at you, you became silent in front of the eyes that couldn't see you. You wondered what would be the point of talking about your book in front of these unseeing eyes, but it wasn't appropriate to talk about something else, such as anecdotes from your life. If anything, they should be telling you their life stories. And because you felt stuck, the first thing you said into the mic was, What should I talk about? They all burst out laughing. Did they laugh because they thought you meant you could tell any story? Or to make you feel more comfortable? A man in his mid-forties replied, Didn't you come to talk about your work? The man's eyes were pointed at you, but were closed. Focusing on them, you started to talk about the inspiration behind the book the things you experienced emotionally during its writing, and the hopes you had for the book after you were done. You were surprised. Of all people you'd met, they'd listened to your words the most intently. 
they demonstrated with their bodies that they were listening carefully. One person was nodding, and another pushed one foot forward, and someone was leaning into the person in front of him. Even though you couldn't understand a word of their writing system, they had read your book and asked questions and shared their thoughts. You told Mother that they revealed such positive feelings about that book more than anyone else you had ever encountered. Mother, who was listening quietly, said, Still, even they've read your book. A short silence flowed between you and Mother. Mother asked you to go on. You continued. When you stopped talking, one person raised his hand and asked if he could ask a question. You told him to go ahead. Even though he's blind, he said traveling was his hobby, Mother. You were stunned. Where would a blind person travel? He said he'd read something you had written a long time ago that was based in Peru. The character in the novel went to Machu Picchu, and there was a scene where a train went backwards. He said after he read that he wanted to ride that train in Peru. He asked if you had personally ridden the train. It was a work you had written over ten years ago. You, who had such a bad memory that you often opened the refrigerator door and forgot why you had opened it, and would stand there for a while with the chill of the fridge washing over you, until you gave up and shut the door, started to talk about Peru, where you had traveled before you wrote that book. Lima, Cusco, dubbed the belly button of the universe, San Pedro Station, where you took the train to Machu Picchu at dawn, about the train that started forward and jerked back many times before starting off to Machu Picchu, you told Mother the names of the places and mountains that I'd forgotten about poured out, feeling friendship from eyes that had never seen, eyes that seemed to understand and accept any flaw of yours. You said something you had never said about that book. Mother asked, where was it? I said, if I were to write again, I don't think I would write it like that. Is that such a big deal to say? She asked. Yes, because I was rejecting what exists, Mother. Mother gazed at you in the darkness and said, Why do you hide those words? You have to live free, saying whatever you feel, and pulled her hand from your grasp and rubbed your back. When you were a child, she used to wash your face the same way, with her big, soothing hands. You tell such good stories, she said. Me? Mother nodded. Yes, I liked it. She liked my story. You were moved. You knew that... What you'd said wasn't all that good. It was just that you were talking to her differently after your experience at the Braille Library. After you'd left home for the city, you'd always talk to her as if you were angry at her. You had talked back to her, saying, What do you know, mother? Why would you do that as a mother? You'd rebuke, Why do you want to know? You retorted coldly. After you'd figured that mother no longer had the power to scold you, if she asked, why are you going there? You replied curtly, because I have to. Even when you had to take a plane because your book was being published in another country or you had to go abroad for a seminar. When she asked, why are you going there? You stiffly replied, because I have business to take care of, mother. Mother told you to stop taking planes. If there's an accident, 200 people die at once. You'd say... It's because I have work to do. If mother asked, why do you have so much work? You replied sullenly, yes, all right, mother. 
It was difficult to talk to her about your life, which had nothing to do with hers. But when you talked about feeling lost seeing the braille version of your book, and the mounting panic you felt standing in front of 400 blind people, she listened as intently as if her headache had gone away. When was the last time you told mother about something that had happened to you? At a certain point, the conversations between you and mother became simplified. Even that was not done face to face, but by telephone. Your words had to do with whether she ate, whether she was healthy, how father was, and that she should be careful not to catch cold, that you were sending money. Mother talked about how she made kimchi and sent some, that she had strange dreams, that she sent rice or fermented bean paste, that she brewed mother worked for you, to send to you, and that you shouldn't turn off your phone because messenger would call before delivering all these packages. Carrying a paper bag that held your braille books, you said goodbye to the people at the braille library. You still had two hours to kill before your return flight. You remembered standing at the day and looking out the window, averting your gaze from those blind eyes, and seeing the harbor dotted with boats. You thought, well, since there's a harbor, there's got to be a fish market. You took a cab and asked to be taken there. You like to visit the market whenever you have the time to spare in a place you've never been. Even on a weekday, the fish market was bustling. Outside the market, you saw two people cutting apart a fish that was as big as a car. You asked if it was tuna, since it was so large, but the vendor said it was an ocean sunfish. You were reminded of a character in a book, whose title you couldn't remember. She was from a seaside town, and she would go to the huge aquarium in the city every time she had a problem to talk to the ocean of sunfish swimming outside. She would complain that her mother took all her life savings and went off with a younger man to a different city, but then at the end would say, But I miss my mother. You're the only one I can tell this to, sunfish. You wondered if that was the same fish. Thinking it was a unique name for the fish, you asked, Really? It's called an ocean sunfish? And the vendor said, We also call it Mola Mola. As soon as you heard the words Mola Mola, the tension you had been feeling inside the library dissipated. Why did you think of mother as you wandered among the heaps of seafood, which cost a third of what they did in Seoul, live octopus with heads bigger than a human's, fresh abalone, scabbard fish, mackerel, and crab? Was it the ocean sunfish that made you think of mother for the first time at a fish market, that made you recall preparing skate at home? By the well next to mother? You could see mother's frozen hands peeling the brownish mucus stuck to the flesh. You stopped at a store that had boiled octopus as big as a child's torso, hanging from the ceiling and brought a live octopus for 15,001. You bought some abalone. Though they were farm-raised, they had been fed different kinds of seaweed. When you said you were going to Seoul. The vendor offered to put your purchase in an ice chest for an extra 2001 As you walked out of the fish market, you realized you still had a lot of time left before your flight. Holding the braille volumes in one hand and the ice chest in the other, you hopped into another cab and told the driver that you wanted to go to the beach. It took only three minutes to get there. The November beach was empty, except for two couples. The beach was big. As you walked towards the water, you almost fell twice. 
You sat down on the fine sand and stared at the sea. After a while, you turned around to look at the shops and apartment buildings facing the ocean across the road. People who lived there could jump into an ocean on a hot night, then go home and take a shower. You absentmindedly took out a braille volume from the paper bag and opened it. The white dots on the page sparkled in the sunlight. Tracing your finger along the indecipherable braille in the sun, you wondered who had taught you to read. It was your second eldest brother. The two of you lying on your stomachs on the porch of the old house, mother sitting next to you, your brother, a gentle soul, caused the least trouble among your siblings. Unable to disobey mother's orders to teach you how to read, his expression bored. He directed you to write numbers and vowels and consonants over and over. You tried to write with your dominant left hand. Every time your brother wrapped the back of your hand with a bamboo ruler, he was doing mother's bidding. Even though it was more natural for you to favor your left hand and foot, mother told you that there would be many things to cry about in life if you used your left hand. When you used your left hand to scoop rice in the kitchen, mother wrenched the scoop out of your hand and put it in your right hand. If you tried to use your left hand anyway, she would grab the scoop and slap your left hand, saying, why won't you listen to me? Your left hand became swollen. Even so, when your brother wasn't watching, you quickly switched the pencil to your left hand and drew two circles, one on top of the other, for the eight. Then you switched the pencil back to your right. Your brother, who knew you had stuck together two circles as soon as he saw your eight, told you to put your palms out and slap them with the ruler. As you were learning how to read, mother looked over your crouched form while she mended socks or peeled garlic. When you learned to write your name and mother's name and read books hesitantly before enrolling in school, your mother's face bloomed like a mint flower. The face overlapped with the braille you couldn't read. You stood up and hurried back to the road without bothering to brush the sand off your clothes. You decided against taking the plane to Seoul and instead took a taxi to Tejong and got on a train to Chongok, thinking all the while that you hadn't seen Mother's face in almost two seasons. You remembered a classroom from long ago. It was a day when the 60 or so kids filled out applications for middle school. If you didn't write an application that day, you were not going to middle school. You were one of the kids who were not working on an application. You didn't completely understand what it meant that you would not be going on to middle school. Instead, you were feeling guilty. The night before, mother had yelled at father, who was ill in bed. She had shouted at him. We don't have anything, so how is that girl going to survive in this world if we don't send her to school? Father got up and left the house. A mother lifted a squat table from the floor and threw it into the yard in frustration. What's the point of having a household when you can't even send your kids to school? I might as well break it all. You wish you would calm down. You didn't mind not going to school. Mother wasn't appeased by throwing the table. She opened and banged shut the door of the cellar and yanked all the laundry off the line, crumpled it, and threw it on the ground. Then she came to you cowering by the well and took the towel off her head and brought it to your nose she ordered blow your nose you could smell the intense stink of sweat on mother's towel you didn't want to blow your nose especially not into that smelly towel but mother kept telling you to blow your nose as hard as you could when you hesitated she said that way you wouldn't cry 
You were probably standing there looking at mother with an expression bordering on tears. Telling you to blow your nose was her way of saying, don't cry. Unable to resist her, you blew your nose and your snot and the smell of sweat mingled in the towel. Mother came to school the next day wearing that same towel. After she spoke with your teacher, your teacher came to you and handed you an application form. You raised your head and looked outside the classroom as you wrote your name on the form and you saw mother watching you from the hall. When your eyes met, she took a towel off her head and waved it, smiling brightly. Around the time the fee for middle school was due, the gold ring that used to be on mother's left middle finger, her sole piece of jewelry, disappeared from her hand. Only the groove of her finger, etched by many years of wearing the band, was left behind. Headaches attacked mother's body constantly. During that visit to your childhood home, you woke up thirsty in the middle of the night and saw your books looming over you in the dark. You hadn't known what to do with all of your books when you prepared to go to Japan for a year with Yubin on his sabbatical. You sent more of the books, books that had stayed with you for years to your parents' house. As soon as mother received your books, she emptied out a room and displayed them there. After that, you never found the opportunity to take them back with you. When you visited your parents' house, you used that room to change your clothes or to store your bags, and if you stayed, that was where mother would place your blankets and sleeping mat. After you got a drink of water and returned to your room, you wondered how mother was sleeping, and you carefully pushed the door open. It looked as if she wasn't there. Mother, you called. No answer. You fumbled with a switch on the wall and turned on the light. Mother wasn't there. You turned on the light in the living room and opened the bathroom door, but she wasn't there either. Mother, mother, you called as you pushed the front door open and stepped into the yard. The early morning wind burrowed into your clothes. You turned on the light in the yard and glanced quickly at the wooden platform in the shed. Mother was lying there. You ran down the steps to the yard and approached her. She was frowning as she had done earlier, asleep, hand on her head. She was barefoot and her toes were curled under, perhaps from the cold. The simple dinner and the talk you had shared while you strolled around the house together shattered. It was an early morning in November. You brought out a blanket and covered mother with it. You brought socks and put them on her feet and you sat next to her until she woke up. Thank you for listening to Heart Classic Pearls. Please check out our Instagram at classic.pearls. We'll be back with more episodes in the following weeks. Tune in for more. This is your host, Classic Pearls, signing off.